This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. <laughs> is that the, like a scooter I could ride on the back? Like, No, but we got to figure out if like, we can get like I could get a wagon and just like sit you in there and cart you around. Like, oh, like a little cool. kid and I could lie in it? Like how That nice. is truly my dream. Because you can't, like, have you guys thought about getting a car? Yes. Yeah. It's, like, a constant This is the debate. only time in the history of the world of Carrie living in New York City. I think anyone living in New York City where it's, like, should we get a car? Yeah. Because um, there's so many things besides even the doctor's appointments now, which uh, when I was pregnant with Koa, I lived right by the doctor like a 10 minute walk. Now it's an hour walk. So I walked an hour there, went to the appointment, walked an hour back. And that's not good for you. <laughs> I actually think it's like the definition of good for you. No, I stand by what I said. It's not good for you. It's not good for you. What would be worse though is roller skating there. That would be very dangerous. Oh my god, do I hear a funny story really quickly? Because we lost all of our earlier banter. Yeah. When I was young, this guy James Vital, who I think is a director now, he Mm -hmm. grew up on the corner. His sister Jenny Vital was my babysitter and I she was my favorite babysitter. And James was making movies when he was in high school, and my brother was probably seven. I was like four or five, and my sister was 10. And the premise of the movie, it was right when Speed came out, Mm -hmm. and it was called The Lawnmower or Mode. And the premise of it was that there was a lawnmower loose that had a bomb in it. That was terrorizing. <laughs> Wait, that's was really good. Terrorizing a neighborhood. And I think I actually have, I can find somewhere the preview, the trailer to it, where it's what I did is he was like, Can we record in your backyard? And my parents were like, Sure, of course. And like, okay, we're gonna pretend it's a birthday party. And it was my brother, he got to be the birthday boy. But Oof. I got to invite my friends over. So it was like when I was like five, I remember being like I can only invite three friends. Oh, who's it going to be like in this movie? <laughs> like five. <laughs> and so you see my brother blow out a candle and like screaming and it's close of shots of a lawnmower like running, <laughs> going across. <laughs> I really need to find it. Maybe we can take a screenshot and put it on the Instagram when this comes out. But like mower, I think it was called mower. Rated R. Rated R. And it was just like, 
filmed in our little neighborhood. And he used, like, all of the kids on the block as extras. It's like there's one thing better than community theater, and that's community video. Video. Yeah. I think he's actually, like, doing very well in L.A. I should call. Maybe he could get me a job or something. (laughs) Be like, hey, it's me. Remember me me from Mower? Remember me from that movie that you shot for free? I got no copy, no credit. I want my IMDb updated. I have to send you an invoice. (laughs) If I was like... Hey, do you mind putting me up uh, as a credit on my IMDb? Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. You have a long one today. Yeah. I'm tired thinking about it. <laughs> Listen, this is what you get for reading books. Like a dumb dumb. Well, that was tiring in and of itself. And now here we go. <laughs> what book was it? It was called Deviant Harry by Harold Schechter. What if it was like, I read Harry Potter. Here, <laughs> You're not going to believe the crimes that took place in this book, Carrie. <laughs> This guy, Voldemort, what a dick. (laughs) (laughs) So, this is a story about Ed Gein. It's pronounced Gein and not Gein. A lot of people pronounce it Gein. And they'd be wrong. They'd be wrong. And you know how you can remember? Gein rhymes with fiend. Rhymes with peen. That's that's how you remember. Fine. Um, I don't, I doubt you've seen this movie, so I doubt this will mean anything to you. <laughs> but the character of Anthony Perkins from Psycho was actually based off Ed Gein. Um, I mean, I wasn't born in a shack, so I understand there's a shower curtain. I know at some point there's an old lady of bones. Well, let's just say... <laughs> An old lady of bones. Yeah, Um, I stand by it. Let's say that uh, the author, Harold Schechter, Mm -hmm. writes in the book, compared to what happened in Wisconsin, where Ed Gein's from, Psycho is as reassuring as a fairy tale. (gasps) I think that's a mild exaggeration, but we'll go with it. You know what that is? Hmm. That's a ploy to buy books. It it worked. (laughs) In 1879. Oh, we're yeah, going we're, back. Well, we're going to start um, with the with the parents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in 1879, George Gaines' family, Ed's dad, lives in Coon Valley, Wisconsin, and George's mom, dad, and sister are like, we're going to go off to town in the wagon to run an errand, and they get caught in a flash flood, and all of them drown. So George is orphaned as a little baby. He's like three. But they left him unattended at the house. Confusing, right? (laughs) They're like, this kid's annoying. No, I think he was staying with his grandparents, who he then lives with. Okay, Um, thank you. I was like, whoa, three years old? And you're like, you stay home. We got errands to run. You're only going to slow us down. Well, Bye, George. It was the 1800s. Don't you think they're like, here's your small pitchfork. Go farm. (laughs) For sure. At three years old, 100%. Okay, so... um, he wouldn't leave his grandparents till he's in his 20s and he moves to lacrosse. Um, he's depressed his whole life, can't hold a job, total alcoholic. Um, I want to say he finds love. Maybe it's not love. It's close enough. He finds this woman, <laughs> Augusta. Um, they meet when he's 24 and she's 19. And she's uh, her parents were from Germany. And I get the impression they were maybe lacked a sense of uh, whimsy or humor. Those kind of people. That's ironic because they named their child Augusta. And, yeah, and they're German. So who's ever heard of a German that doesn't just love fun? So 
they um, bring Augusta up pretty rigidly and also to be very religious. You know, her father ensures this sort of rigidity and and sense of morale morality with so nervous well just with the customary beatings like that's what you do when you're that kind of family right yeah sure you 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 saw that coming um i wasn't sure if it had to do with like chastity belts but it was beatings okay it was beatings and so she uh she grows up though pretty serious about like looking around her and citing the immoralities that happen around her and in the world and she often just finds people's behavior not up to par. She's also very sort of outspoken and domineering. She is just a force to be reckoned with. And pretty soon after getting married to George, she is like, that was a mistake. Not into you. But because of divorce, her upbringing, cool, yep, that's it. You made your bed, sweetie. So she's going to lie. Mm-hmm. In it. Um, um, so she... I bet she wasn't feeling that pious then, was she, she? You know, she just had a lot of anger toward him. He wasn't what she wanted. So she'd call him names like a, a lazy dog, and she'd make a lot of fun of him. And kind of the effect was that George sort of, as a man, got smaller and smaller and quieter and quieter and kind of withdrawn. Right. Um he was already fucking depressed and an alcoholic, so I think well, he it just... lost his family in a flood. Yeah, but did he even really know them? You, When you lose a family, <laughs> I don't care how old you are. Harry Potter lost his family, but he, but he still missed them. You're right. As we said, she's made her bed. She's going to lie in it, and she's going to be like, let's at least make a baby, I guess. Maybe there'll be someone in the house I don't fucking hate. Sure. So that's, she has... That's the best way to bring life into the world. Yep. That's why I did it. Matt, come on, I'm kidding. I'm kidding you. God, have a sense of humor. All right, so Henry's born on January 17th, 1902. And Augusta, she doesn't feel close to Henry, but she kind of thinks maybe it's because he's like another dude. And she's like, what I think I was picturing is having like another woman in the house that I could relate to. So it feels like, I'm just going to say this, Augusta, it sounds like you're trying to control everyone around you. And really the person you need to work on is you. Do you think that's good advice? I don't advice? think they had therapists back then. They didn't. I'm posthumously giving her therapy. She gets pregnant again, this time with Ed. But she prays every night that it's going to be a little girl. And then on August 27th, 1906, welcome Ed to the world. Um, She feels pissed that it's another boy. She feels super disappointed. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to make this kid different. I'm going to make him moral and good. And I'm going to make him someone that is not going to do horrible things to women, including, I don't know, have sex with them. Oh, Just like he's not going to be one of those gross perverts that like wants to have a woman's body. He's going to like get morality. So she um she reads the Bible to both her sons and she's always like swear to me that you won't become contaminated by women. And it actually works in a weird way in the sense that n- neither of her sons will ever marry. High five Augusta. 
<laughs> start that process right now on Koa. So Ed grows up <laughs> super close to his mom, who watches him like a hawk. And she basically corrects any behaviors she finds of his to be uh, upsetting to her or not up to par. And in his eyes, she's sort of like a god figure. She's never wrong. He doesn't question this. They are on a farm and Ed is not allowed to go into one of the back buildings on the farm. And one day he's like, I just want to go peek in. And he peeks in and sees his mom and dad in aprons covered in blood. They're gutting a hog. Okay. That's hanging from the ceiling. And it kind of traumatizes him, like makes him upset or sick or he sort of focuses in on that. Um, That is a total beside the point thing that I just wanted to tell you because I thought it was interesting in reference to what will happen to Ed later. Right. I'm sorry. I said they were farmers. They actually owned a grocery store and then become farmers in when he's like seven. She's like, you know what? We own this grocery Let's actually move even further from the city and become farmers because I think she thinks the city is going to leak its immorality onto them. Like the farther from the city, the more isolated they can be, the cleaner a life. The city Uh, usually does that. The city does that, girl. So they're like, let's get out of here. And as a result, they're even more isolated. They move to Plainfield, Plainfield, Wisconsin. So he's not popular at school. I'm not surprised. Really? It sounds like he has an emotionally and physically abusive mother. I can't imagine that's not going to like seep into his social interactions. Yeah, I think he's like, they think he's kind of weird. Like he has always this like crooked kind of smile, even when he's talking about something that would be like inappropriate to smile about. He's a crybaby. He cries all the time. Um, Same. He's just really awkward and the kids kind of tease him for being effeminate i wonder if the effeminate thing was at all like an unconscious desire on his part to please his mother right um because she so wanted him to be a girl also she doesn't like masculinity it sounds like yeah i don't think anything that is like seen as too masculine is maybe not rewarded which is sort of ironic only because i got the feeling from reading about her that she was a really masculine energy yeah. And she, but she really um em- emasculates their father. Um right. so they don't really have any um they don't have like a male model these kids really to look to. I'm sorry when you No <laughs> male models. No they handsome had, boy models. No handsome boy models, but they also didn't have any like role models either. They didn't male role models. Male <laughs> models. <laughs> neither neither male role models present nor male models. No male models. And it's interesting in Wisconsin. Everyone should grow up near a male model. If you don't, how do you know? If you don't, how do you know what manhood is? How do you know what your look, what your signature look will be so he withdraws into himself kind of like his dad he becomes like kind of just quiet and weird and he sort of just wants to exist in his own fantasy world and then his dad dies um Mm. which is no major loss to anybody i don't think he in the sense that he his brother his mom none of them felt like they were close to him yeah they felt super distanced from him so um the brothers, though, were pretty close. Like, he and um, his brother would uh, 
go fishing together and hang out together and grow up together. And as they're adults, they still are like pretty close. But at some point, Henry was not sort of under Augusta's spell and make some sort of comment to Ed about, I don't know what he says. He makes it clear that he doesn't see her as a godlike figure that's right about everything. Right. He casts he has a doubt. normal relationship with her in the sense that he's skeptical and critical of her. Yeah. And Ed is like, finds that out as an adult and is like, well, what? As if there was like no other option than to feel what he felt for her. Different people think different things. Exactly. Ed is like, what in the world? It's news to him. I think it really shakes things up and confuses right. and upsets him. So in May 6, on May 16th, 1944, so they're grownups now, Ed and Henry are fighting a fire, a runaway fire that was in some marshland. I don't know if it's one of those fires you do on purpose to control the crops. Horse, or, yeah. But it gets out of control and they're fighting it. And only Ed comes back from fighting the fire alive. And he says that the wind blew up and the fire got out of control and that when he went to go try to find his brother, he couldn't. So the police come and he weirdly leads them exactly to Henry's body. And they're like, hey, uh, uh, we thought you couldn't find your brother. And Ed's like, I know. Weird, right? <laughs> like, does not really have, like, a normal answer for that. Also, the ground where they find the body is scorched, like the fire has been through there, but the body's not scorched. It's just covered in ash, and there's kind of, like, strange bruises on the head. <gasps> but it's 1944 and their brothers that got along, and so for whatever reason, they just don't look into it at all. Yeah. They're just like, oh, Okay, uh, smoke inhalation killed this guy for sure. Like, bye. (laughs) Thanks so much, Ed. Enjoy your day. Sorry about your brother. So now it's just Ed and Augusta. That's our little family unit is shrinking. Oh, Jesus. The two worst people to be around each other. Well, they're best friends. Augusta has a stroke, and so Ed has to take care of her, which he takes super seriously. You know, he's, like, by her bed reading her stories and really taking care of her. And I think he kind of likes that, uh, having that role, having purpose. But then she has a second stroke, and she does die at 67 years old. And Ed... old? Huh? I feel like that's old in the old days. For that time, I think it's super normal. Um... But, like, it crushes Ed. This was his only person. Yeah. This was his, she was his life. He is alone in the world. So he, you know, he mostly keeps to himself. He's really nice to his neighbors. Like, he was one of these guys that anytime someone uh, needs a favor, he's right there uh, to help them out. He is making ends meet by sort of like renting part of their farmland to other farmers and hiring himself out as a handyman, essentially. So some favors he will charge for if they're bigger jobs. And he is squeamish about blood, I think, going all the way back to seeing that that hog. hog. And so he doesn't do hunting or butchering or anything. And also probably the murder of his brother. But yeah, (laughs) if he did do that, and we'll never know if he did. 
It feels like it didn't impact him at all. Yeah. Anyway, we really don't know. And we'll never find out, by the way. I so, mean, unless you go to, unless you die and, like, if there is a heaven and someone's and, a pearly gate. Like, and Ed Gein is there. And, Ed Gein, and you know all about, like, we talked about this. When I die, I want to know all about conspiracies. Which ones are true? Which ones are not? Right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the benefit. And also, like, anyone, like, any mysterious murder, you find out right away. Ugh. I can't wait. And <laughs> <laughs> end it all tonight. <laughs> Um, anyway, hobby-wise for Ed, he's like us, just a normal, super into true crime kind of person. <laughs> he does. He likes to read, like, true crime magazines. He's kind of interested in learning about, like, the barbarities that the Nazis... Oh, God. Uh, and Super Nintendo. And like, Super Nintendo. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Could you imagine? He's like, also, I love Atari. And he's got a yo-yo. <laughs> Ed Gein had one of those kid what exhibits if, at the well, museum. Yes, I was about to say, yeah. what if it was, like, taxidermy <laughs> observations books. and squirrels and yo yo and then the dating game with just his mom's face superimposed on all all the women women. oh my god it's so good (laughs) um he likes stories about like zombies and bodies being exhumed and body snatchers and there's this story he is really fascinated by about um an ex-gi that went to denmark to get a sex change and he's like really interested in that idea because he he does fantasize about having a woman's body about being a woman that's like a really interesting thing to him i think that i don't know if he was trans specifically or his mom had like castrated all psychologically castrated all the men in a sense where she emasculated all the men she spoke really poorly about the men in her life and around them and his own body so maybe that was just like a psychological totally. need to not to distance himself. I mean, it could be one or the other, right? It could totally be that. It could also be that he had um, feelings of wanting a woman or wanting to like see a naked woman or be near a naked woman. And since that was so shameful, so immoral, according to his mother, yeah. the only way he could have gotten to know a female body in a way that wasn't immoral is if he had one himself. Right. And it was his body. So that could have been, it, for whatever reason, there's a, I don't know what was at play there for him, but that is something that really he thinks about a lot. Right. He also reads the paper and rips out and saves the obituaries. So what else does he do? He goes uh, sometimes to a nearby tavern owned by a woman named Mary Hogan. Mary Hogan, he was always, like, struck by how much she resembled his mom, but she was sort of like bizarro his mom because his mom was, like, the quintessential woman in his mind of uh, good and purity and morals. And this woman, Mary Hogan, was like, she don't... She was was sassy and ran a tavern and she cursed. Yeah, she's a bar wench. So... There's, like, some, like, Oedipal shit happening here. Yeah, and I think he liked to go to that bar because he liked to kind of watch her and be like, weird, what are my feelings on Bizarro Augusta? Ooh, Um, so bizarre. At the time that he's living in Plainville, there's a 10-year period of a bunch of disappearances. An 8-year-old named Georgia Weckler goes to the mail and never comes back. There is an all-night search. They find nothing. They offer an $8,000 reward, which today would be 93000 And um, the only clue is that a black Ford sedan 
had backed out of the street. Then a teenager, Evelyn Hartley, disappears while babysitting. She's 15. Uh, the parents call her and she's not there. And they go to the house and they find her glasses and her shoe. And they eventually, the search yields like her bra and underwear and a pair of men's bloodstained trousers in the area. Three more people vanish near Plainfield. Two are older male farmers who stop at a bar for beers and then drive away and are never heard from again. And then Mary Hogan. No. The tavern lady vanishes. They just see a pool of blood on the floor and a spent 32 cartridge. So it looks like someone drug her body out after shooting it. Anyway, there's this farmer at the time that's employing Ed as a handyman. His name is Elmo Uick. Uick. How would you say this last name? U-E-E-C-K. It's just a list of vowels. I'd like to buy a vowel. Uke. Great. Okay. Elmo Uke. He says to Ed, Hey, Ed, if you spent more time courting Mary, she'd be cooking for you instead of missing. And Ed's like... She's not missing. She's down at the house now. And they like laugh. And um, (gasps) after that, Ed gets kind of a laugh from Elmo. And so after that, anytime her disappearance, Mary Hogan's disappearance comes up, people know that Ed knows her. Anytime people talk about how she's missing, he always says, oh, she's just down at the farm. I went and got her in my pickup truck and now she's home. And everyone's just like, it's the same as when he was a kid. He's got like this crooked half grin while he talks. And he's creepy, but super harmless. So people or just... Is he, or is he harmless? Well, we'll see. Dun, you dun, dun. So um, at this time, also a rumor starts going around Plainfield that one of the teenagers starts that Ed has shrunken heads at his house. Um, and that one of the teenagers is like, I saw them. Then another Plainfield woman goes missing, Bernice Warden. She's 50 years old. She vanishes on November 16th, 1957. She worked at the local hardware store. And the day that she goes missing, her son, who's usually kind of hanging around, was out hunting. Ed would have known that the son was out hunting. Why? Because he asked him what he was up to the day before, and the son told him. Ed does go into her store that day as he often did because he's been hanging around her store a lot making very uncomfortable and awkward conversations with her that she found pretty annoying um so he's like can i buy some antifreeze she writes up a receipt for him and sets it on the counter and he leaves the store then he comes back in and is like actually i also want to trade my rifle for a different gun And when Bernice turns her back on Ed... She shoots him. Yeah, he does. He shoots her and drags her out of the store. Bernice also looked a lot like Augusta, at least according to Ed, and also lacked her morality. But they were... looked pretty similar. How many people are missing right now? Well, we'll get to that. So many. So many. The author of the book I read, Harold Schechter, said that he thinks that Ed saw Bernice as the evil antithesis of his mother. So what happens is the neighbor, Bernard Machinsky, who lives kind of near the hardware store, notices 
the hardware store truck back out and leave and the lights remain on in the store. And he's like, that's kind of weird. That's fishy. And then a few hours after this happens, Elmo stops by Ed's farm because he was hunting on Ed's land and shot a deer. And that's like kind of frowned upon. And he wants to make sure he's not like in trouble with Ed. So he goes to tell him and he sees Ed replacing his snow tires with regular tires, which is just like a really odd thing to do because it's the start of winter. It's like November. Um, But Ed does weird stuff. Then a couple hours after that, two local teens, Bob Hill and his sister, come by and ask Ed, our car's battery's dead. Can you drive us to town? He's like, sure. Let me just clean up. His hands are all bloody. And he's like, oh, I, I was dressing a deer. Which, if you knew Ed, he didn't hunt and he didn't fuck around with deer. Yeah. So you're, like, kind of weird. Then Munchinski, the neighbor that I told you about, he runs into Bernice's son and he's like, hey, it was so weird. I saw the truck leave the store, but the lights were on. And her son Frank is like, that is really weird. Has a bad feeling right away. Goes to the store and sees the cash register's missing. There's blood on the floor. His mom's not there. Oh. Frank happens to be the deputy sheriff. So he calls the chief deputy right away, and he's like, hey, my mom's gone. Ed Gein did this. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's like, he's been hanging around the store a bunch. He's been acting like a weirdo creep. Not only that, but on the counter. It's his receipt. Is the fucking handwritten receipt for antifreeze with his name on it. So they go to Ed's, and they ask him a bunch of questions, and his story keeps sort of changing. And when they call him out, he's like, um, somebody framed me. And they're like, framed you for what? And he's like, oh, killing Miss Warden. <laughs> and they're oh like, my God. Uh, what makes you think she's dead? And he's like, oh, I heard it. And they're like, no, you didn't, Ed. No, you didn't. So now it's time to search his house. What so, did they find? Well, the first thing they realize when they go to search it is that Ed's a fucking hoarder. And it's so intense. It's like worse than the TV show intense. Did it say that in the book? Yes, that's exactly how they characterize it. Do you know the show Hoarders? It's worse than that. It's way, way worse. (laughs) It's like food scraps, rat shit, newspapers, tin cans filled with gum, dirty handkerchiefs. Um, ash piles, there's a tub filled with twine, broken plates, uh, tons of old food. Like the sink is filled with sand. It's like bizarre, crazy crazy land. Yes. You're like, whoever lives here is fucking insane. There's a shelf with yellow dentures like displayed on it. Um, Oh God. There's this thing called a summer kitchen in his house, which it's sort of like a shed attached to the house. And they go to search. One of the guys that they're searching the home goes to search it and feels something brush up against him and turns and it's Bernice. And she's hanging upside down by her feet and she's been beheaded and her body's been gutted like a deer or a cow or whatever. Oh, my God. Yeah. So now they're like, holy shit. And her son is there? No, 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 no. Thank God. But they're like, now 
we have to keep searching because what the fuck else are we going to find? This is so psychotic. Um, Schechter, the author, called it the archaeological dig from hell. And so they're wading through like the (laughs) wild, wild country that is this home. And they find a skull cap being used as a bowl. And they find more skull caps and then two complete skulls that have been taken and secured to the bedposts. His bed. Oh, my God. They suddenly start looking at everything in the house a little closer, a little differently, and realize that one of the chairs with a leather seat cover, it's stretched human skin that makes the cover. Oh, my God. They start to discover that that's not the only crafts project. There are other things made out of human skin in the house. Lampshades, a wastebasket, a knife sheath, a drum. And they find a shade pole on a curtain made out of a woman's lips at the end. (gasps) I don't know why that got me. I know. I don't know why that one got me. All of it's getting me, but that, that got me. They find a bell lined with women's nipples. Oh, my God. So, okay, the weirdest thing happened to me when I was reading this book that I have to tell you that was so scary. So I'm reading this book, and as I start to read part of this list, my brain did a thing where I knew what he was going to say next. And I was like, and then it'll be this, and then it'll be this. And I was right. And I could not for the life of me for a moment. I was like, why do I know That's scary. How scary is that? You're scary. Do you think it's your baby? I know what it is now. Why I knew. I was in a, like, classically, when I was in graduate school, there was a play we did called Orestes 2.0 that was um, the story of arrest, whatever. It was like a Greek tragedy, but it was done in a mental institution. I think that's a fairly common. Yeah. Charles Mee is the guy that wrote it. Oh, it's Chuck a Mee. really weird play. Yeah. I played one of the mental patients and I had a monologue in this play that was about this and it was almost sorry to out you Charles. Word it was almost word. lifted word for word from this book. The list. Oh my god. So I had it memorized because I said it like 20 times in a play. But I didn't know when I did the play that it was about a real guy. Wow. Yeah. How crazy. And I didn't know it was a nonfiction fucking thing. Anyway, I would like to now read you my monologue. Yeah. So this was the monologue from the Charles Mee play, Orestes 2.0. I was playing the character of Nod. There was a guy checked in here once. Were you on the floor then? who had this shoebox full of female genitalia. Did you see that? He had nine vulvas. This is a true story. Most were dried and shriveled, uh, the one had been sort of daubed with silver paint and trimmed with a red ribbon. Another one, the one on top, seemed really fresh. He had part of the mons veneris with the vagina and anus attached. And when you looked real close, you could see little crystals on it. He'd sprinkled it with crystals of salt. Another box, he had four noses, human noses, and there was a Quaker Oats box with scraps of human head integument. 
and several pairs of leggings he had made and a vest that he had made from the torso of a woman tanned like leather with a string on it so you could pull it up and wear it, breasts and all. And masks that he had made by peeling the faces from the skulls of different women. Of course, they had no eyes, just holes where the eyes had been, but the hair was still attached to the scalps. A few were all dried out, but some of them had been treated with oil to keep the skin smooth and lifelike. Some had lipstick on their lips. If you had known them and you'd seen their masks, you would have recognized them. That's the monologue that I said in the play. And I'm talking to another mental int- like patient calmly about this as a mental patient. Oh, but gosh. that everything I just said is something they found in Ed Gein's house. None of it's made up. Holy shit. Isn't that wild? Oh, God. Like, um, I guess I just want to add that some of the masks, the fa- human face masks they found had been stuffed with newspaper to sort of give them form. And they actually did look like shrunken heads. So that teenager was right. Yes, the teenager was right. Um, they also found Bernice's heart in a bag by the stove and her entrails wrapped in newspaper inside a man's suit. Um, and in the summer kitchen, they went and dug around and there was like a couple stacked mattresses and they found a sack with her head inside. What was crazy about finding her head is that through each of her ears, there was little nails and like a piece of twine strung between them. So he was going to hang her head her head up as like a decor item. Yeah. Oh, my God. Very questionable taste. Mm-hmm. West Elm ain't selling that? No. But is, what's it called? Ikea? (laughs) (laughs) Who's the people that are in trouble for selling women online? Wayfair. Wayfair. Wayfair probably sells it. For sure. Um, (gasps) So then they come to a part of the house that's all boarded up. And they're like, listen. They're like, I can't. Not today. That's what they're like. They're like, like, I need a break. Let me wait for a day. Like, I I just. Well, they're like, if this is what we're finding in this dude's living room. What's fucking boarded up? What's boarded up? But they're like, we've got to look. So they break down the boards. And they're pretty shocked to discover it's a preserved area of the house that is like a museum. Not cluttered at all. There's like a thin layer of dust on everything, but it's where his mom lived. So it's like her room in a living room off it or whatever. And it's all just like almost like a museum, right? Yeah. That he's like preserving for her. Um, So obviously they're like bringing Ed in. They interrogate him for over 12 hours. He admits to nothing. What? Yeah. This was a crazy frame job, Ed. Ed. uh, Ed, (laughs) I don't know if you've been framed, buddy. I don't know if you've been framed, buddy. You've been living here. There's, uh, this ain't gonna fly. So they were, the examination of the body parts reveal that Bernice was dead when all the weird stuff happened to her body. Like, she died Mm -hmm. of the gunshot. So they are like, Ed, look, we like a hundred percent have you for murder on this and he's like okay but i've never done anything like that before it was totally a fluke that's the only person i've ever killed and they're like well ed your collection of body parts does suggest suggest otherwise." otherwise and he's like well i can explain that i have this other hobby and i've actually been robbing graves for the past five years and they are like 
all right, let's slow down. Let's go to your house and show us if there's anything that we haven't found. And he shows them um, like an area of his farmland where he had emptied Miss Warden's blood. And the press is there at the time. And they're taking pictures of him. And he's doing that weird fucking smile. You can find pictures of him where he's like on his land with this goofy ass half smile. And you're like, what are you smiling about, Ed? Obviously, the newspapers... It it blows the fuck up. It's huge news in Plainfield. And Plainfield has no news. So it's also like this How is this not? It has to be national news. This is insane. But it's also like putting this town on the map in this way that they are like not into. No, 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 no. Yeah, they're like, great. Hard cast. And they call him the mad butcher of Plainfield. And they're like, no. Um, (laughs) We're a farm country. We moved away from the city to get away from immorality. We didn't want it followed us here. And then you've got doofy Ed being like, I'm just interested in science. Like, I wanted to be a scientist. I actually, I wanted to be a doctor. And I just was, like, interested in these bodies. And meanwhile, chaos. Everyone's blaming everyone that's ever gone missing. On him. Got taken by this guy, Ed, including, by the way, you'll love this, blast from the past, the Grind Sisters. Really? They're like, he did it, for sure. Like, but th- there's nothing to tie him to any of it. No. I'm just saying they're also, all, the like. the Grind Sisters were found naked on the side of the road. Ed would have kept them. Yeah. And done some weird shit. Done so some that weird doesn't arts feel and fucking projects. probable. Okay, Ed. So now all the women also in town are like, I want to tell my close call story. Because everyone knew him. So everyone's like, there was a time I was alone with him. There was a time he came to my house and my husband was out. Right. Um, the creepiest story is that there's this one girl who worked at a bakery and was alone with him. And he stepped behind the counter with her and touched her hair and said, you look like my mother. Ooh. Oh, I hate that. So I hate all yeah. of this. So then they question Ed some more, and he's like, not really displaying any remorse, but he's also, to be clear, just does not seem to understand the gravity the of the situation at all. Like he just, Ugh. he, I hesitate to use the word innocent, but there's an innocence about him where he's like, what's the, what's all the huff about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and any question they ask him about the body parts, he seems pretty forthcoming. Like, they're like, Ed, did you take those vaginas and put them on your penis and wear them to see what it felt like to, like, have a vagina? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I did do that. And they're like, what else? And he's like, oh, I put on the leggings. I put on the vest. I put on the masks I made. And I would walk around my house dressed like a woman that way. And sometimes if it was, like, a nice night I'd walk outside my home at night like that um so he's really quick to be like here's my perversions here's my weirdness right but they're still not getting him to admit to he barely admitted to Bernice's murder he does not like to talk about killing Bernice at all like it that's he because he kind of says he like blacked it out anyway the grave digging He says that that was a thing he did all the time and that he would go to a few different cemeteries and he would take a whole body sometimes or he'd decide the parts he wanted and he'd do that. He loves answering questions about this, actually. Like, he's really talking about it a lot and he's saying that it's helping him clear his mind. And he says the interrogator is really helping him. And I think he just needed a therapist so badly. And there was nothing like like that. Someone was talking to him. He's like, oh, thank God. Somebody that I can just talk to about all this. They are eventually able to pin one more murder on Ed. And that's the murder of Mary Hogan, that 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. So they do find an ash heap on the property that has her remains. They are like pushing for not guilty by reason of insanity. But the townspeople are like not into it. They're like, there's no way all those bodies that he took shit from were all grave robbed. And people are talking about how hard it would have been to do that alone right. at night. Like the amount of digging and then you get to it and then you have to open the coffin and then you have to sometimes he's saying he like performed cutting out pieces of the body right then. And it's a lot of work. How would he not have been spotted? Yeah. But he's like, no, that's what I did. I'll give you a list of the ones I remember. Like, here's a list of a bunch of the bodies I stole. So then there's this sort of moral question of do we go exhume them? Because the families of the dead are like, we're not into this. Like, a lot of people are like, we don't want you to go. Maybe they don't want to know the answer, but they're also just like, we don't want to play this lunatics game, whatever it is. Um, But they do notice one of the bodies he says he robbed, the grave was right next to his parents' grave. Interesting. Yeah. Which seems to give it a little more. Uh, To me, it casts more doubt that it's like. (laughs) So you're sort of like, that seems like maybe he did do that. So they put him in a max security hospital and. The psychiatrists are talking to him and they're like, he loves women and he hates women and he wanted to be one and he's sexually warped. And Ed keeps telling them this story that really stuck with him over the years. It's not the hog getting gutted story, but he tells a story about how after his mom's first stroke, he was out with her and there was a man standing in front of his house beating a puppy to death. And they saw this happen, and a woman stood in the doorway while this man beat a puppy to death, and the woman was screaming at the man to stop. Mm-hmm. And when they left this horrible scene, Augusta kept talking to him about how horrible what they saw was because that couple wasn't married. That woman shouldn't have been there. That woman shouldn't have been at the house. And how upset she was that this woman was at that man's house. Ed sort of blames this woman for his mother's death because he said she was so upset when they left and then she had that second stroke and that's what killed her. Now, it's so interesting because he sort of saw this really violent, crazy thing happening that shouldn't have been happening, but then was told verbally while he's like trying to digest this like puppy Yes. That it was actually... That what was upsetting about it was this other thing. Yeah. Which is so confusing, right? Ugh. So, finally, they're like, we don't know what to do. We've got to fucking dig up at least one of these bodies to see what's up. They pick a date, and they're like, this is when we're going to do it. And then they actually do it the day before because they're like, that probably got out. The press will be there. So let's, like, sneak out and do it early. Um, And they go to Eleanor Adams' grave, which he says he robbed. And guess what the gravestone says? What? Mother. Which would have been like a beacon to someone like Ed, right? Ugh. So within an hour, just one hour of digging, remember they said it would be so hard to do this, they hit the coffin and they notice right away it's been tampered with. They open it. It's empty. The only thing inside is a fucking crowbar. So they're like, all right, let's go do one more. They go to Mabel Everson's grave. And again, it only takes a fucking hour. Coffin's tampered with. And above the coffin in the dirt are some human remains. 
So they're like, okay, okay, okay. Let's stop opening these graves. This dude's telling the truth. They also find another complete skeleton at this time on Ed's farm, buried. It ended up being a woman that had died years before, and it was another grave robbery situation. But in the end, they decide, like, he's telling the truth. He's just, like, robbing these graves. They're still questioning Ed at the mental institution, and he's always, like... Remember, he's sort of got this effeminate thing where he's always feeling a little delicate and a little sick and saying that he's smelling bad smells that make him dizzy and he needs to stop. And overall, they're like, this guy has partial loss of memory. He can't really distinguish what he remembers versus what he's told. We definitely think he's emotionally disturbed. Obviously. (laughs) Feels like a no-brainer there. (sighs) I know. Who's paying these people? He does not remember details of the murders. He sort of feels like he, like, blacked out when he did both of them. But he does say they wouldn't have happened if his neighbors had been nicer to him. He also notes, he notes that Bernice Warden stole her husband from another woman. So it was sort of her comeuppance. Like, it was a bit fair what happened to her in the end. He also ends up revealing that his mother still talks to him. He also ends up revealing that the reason they might have found those bones above the grave is that he was out robbing graves all the time. And sometimes he'd get hit with remorse and he'd stop midway through so he'd have like half dug up a body and then be like i'm gonna leave it or he'd go back and put the body back and then bury it because he felt bad sometimes all the psychiatrists are like this was a way of getting back at his mother he wanted to dig up his mother because he wanted her back from the dead so that was a part of it was his love for her And then what he would do, all these violent, horrible things to the body, that was like his fuck you to his mother. Because he knew somewhere deep down that he hated her for what she did in the way that she fucked him up and raised him. I don't actually, for the record, believe she fucked him up. I think it takes two to tango. Well, I think she fucked him up, but like... I don't think Henry was going to become a grave-robbing... Murderer? Vagina-saving... Whatever. So he doesn't have to stand trial because he's insane, which the community is pissed about. And the next big event is they are going to sell his farm and his property. Um, And at 2.30 in the morning the night prior to the sale, it gets lit on fire. Of course it does. Of course. When someone tells Ed, he goes, eh, just as well. (laughs) It's like, doesn't care. Um, They auction off his items and like 20,000 tourists come for the auction. Not like his bot, not like the creepy stuff. No, 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 no. Not evidence. Just like his shit. Like his car. He has um, a 1949 Ford sedan and it's bought by somebody who calls themselves the Koch Brothers, but it turns out to be a cover name. It's a sideshow exhibitor. And this guy puts a fake Ed in the car and a fake Bernice Warden in the car <gasps> no. and calls it the Gein Ghoul car. So okay. years yeah. later, Governor-elect John Reynolds visits the mental hospital that Ed's in. And Ed says to him, he doesn't know it's Ed. He just thinks he's talking to a mental patient there. Oh, and he's God. like, how do you like it here? And Ed's like, I'm happy here. It's a good place. Some of the people here are pretty disturbed, though. <laughs> he's talking to the governor yeah and then the go- somebody tells the governor after it they're like you know who that was he's like no they're like Oi. <laughs> don't take all the press photos forget out. it yeah 
So in January 1968, which is 10 years after he's originally institutionalized, um, they decide he's well enough to stand trial and it lasts a week. And a bunch of people that come to watch say they ended up feeling really surprised at how they felt about it, that they actually felt sorry for him because he's like this really sort pathetic. of pathetic guy. And he's like, kind of just doesn't seem to be with it. And like, they ask him at the trial, uh, how do you pronounce your name? And he goes, well, some say Gein and some say Gein. And I say Gein, but I don't know. He's talking about his own name. Like, brother is has no confidence. Like, it's really sad to watch in this weird way oh, where you're God. just like, what's this guy's deal? So, of course, they find him not guilty what? by reason of insanity. Oh, okay, good. Oh, God. And he goes right back home. It's just to the, the institution. Yeah. Okay. To the institution. He He's home, been institutionalized like, too crazy to stand trial. And when they're like, He's sort, he can stand trial now. Yeah, seven more years. So he's now been institutionalized 17 years. And he's like, you know what? I'd like to get out of here. I think I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. So he petitions for a hearing. And part of the hearing, they have to do these tests, all different kinds of tests. One of the tests, though, that I read about was that um, they tell you um, a common phrase and you say what you think it means. And so they say, what do you think it means? Don't cry over spilled milk. And he says, don't dig up the past. What's done is done. They say, what do you think it means? Still water runs deep. He says, some people are calm on the surface and hotheads underneath. This is my favorite, though. They say to him, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And he just starts cracking up and goes, if you have a bird in your hand, you might squeeze him too much and kill him. So they're like, Ed, dude, you're not ready to go out there. Come on. You can't leave. Um, he does get transferred to another hospital, Mendota Mental Health Institution in Madison. And a year after that, there's a crazy murder that takes place in Milwaukee. This woman, Helen Lowe's, gets like her eyes gouged out and has slits in her face of somebody trying to peel off her skin. And it turns out to be this former... A mental patient from that hospital, Purvis Smith. And when he gets taken in by the police, he's like, oh, yeah, I learned all kinds of interesting things about face masks and stuff from my friend Ed Gein that I met at the mental institution. Oh, God. Oh, Ed God. Gein dies at 78 years old of old. respiratory failure. Oh, my God. At what? 72 years? 78. That was like 82. No, 72... That was, like, in the 80s. That was, like, recently. He's buried next to his mother, Augusta. Oh, God. Just as he should be. So sickening. I hate that. What a wild tale, though. I feel so dirty. Well, I'll tell you, I didn't realize. I knew that he was, like, this cra- In my head, Ed Gein was a crazy murderer. I had no idea. That he was a crazy, like he wasn't a crazy, mur- he was, uh, he was crazy and a murderer. He was both those things. And I think I just didn't realize that it was not a, what you totally picture, like the bloodlust thing wasn't totally there. He it hated was blood. Yes. And the grave robbing element, I really didn't know about it. Because when you hear about somebody having all these body parts, you are like, 
You like the how act many of people and all those missing people I read you about. I really think he had nothing to do with other than the two we know of. I don't think he killed anybody else other than Especially those, those two. Especially those like young girl. I don't know. But th- again, that doesn't seem to fit his mo at all. I think he killed women that reminded him of his mother. Ugh. the woman who survived, who he touched her hair and said, "You remind me of my mother." Oy. Holy shit! Yeah. I guess it's my turn. I guess so. You're the only wanna. one else in the room. I don't wanna. You have to. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, so I'm telling this story. I got this story from uh, Wikipedia, baby. Um, American Heritage. It was a 1960 article. Thank you, Internet. Medium and Unsolved Mysteries. Great. This was not an Unsolved Mysteries fan page. They just put this up for consideration. Oh. Let it be known. They didn't really go for it. Okay. This is a story of... Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold. Don't know her. Well, you know with a lot of names. She was a socialite. She was super fancy. Um, she was born July 1st, 1885. Um, so she's born and raised in Manhattan. She's the daughter. Um, so she's the heiress to a perfume situation. Her dad. Lucky lady. Lucky lady. They live at um, 108 East 79th Street. So we can go and visit her old Hurled haunches. She's 5'4". She weighs 140 pounds. TMI. I actually really loved that because <laughs> at the time it was like, they were like, she's 5'4 and 140 pounds, known to be beautiful of that time. And I was like, yes, yes, she is beautiful. Thank you. I was very excited to hear about that That in the 1800s, 1900s. You know, I'm 5'3", 143 pounds as of today. See, this is what I'm saying. This is why I like it. Because, like, you have a baby. She didn't have a baby. Well, we'll get into it. Okay, so. You're like, maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe, baby. But, like, I like that she wasn't, like, so skinny. She was, like, a fucking woman. Well, in the 1800s, they had it right. They were, like, you don't want to look like you have um, no money and you're starving. Now, that's, like, all people want to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. Okay, so she's a socialite. So she's amongst, like, the higher class. Like, she goes shopping. She anyway, she goes shopping. This is a great thing to talk about women. Nailing it already. Um, <laughs> she's, she's super empowered. But she shops do, like, all the they time. They do, like, the debutante thing, right? So, right. like, around this time, her sister's about to have a debutante ball. She's 25. She had five years ago graduated from Bryn Mawr. So she's a graduate in the... In, like, the late, no, 1910. Yeah, she's a graduate, which I think is crazy in the early in the 1900s. Yeah, that's wild. In the 1900s, I think I said. 1900s. <laughs> she's a fucking graduate. I'm into it. So she wants to be a writer, right? So she's spending all this time writing at her parents' house, and she is submitting articles to this publication. I think it's called McClure. And she's getting a denial. And the worst thing about it is her family starts, like, making fun of her because they find out that she wants to be a writer. And they're like, you idiot woman. Why would you do that? And they would just mock her for getting rejection so much so that she opened a post office box to, like, get um, correspondences. And she got denied, like again and then finally she was like dad can i please rent an apartment in greenwich village to write and he's like no a good writer can write anywhere you know like she wasn't in a situation where her family was like supporting her endeavor as an artist they wanted her to be a socialite i mean she was a socialite but they wanted her oh god wouldn't you kill if your parents just wanted you to be a socialite right now (laughs) 
I mean, incredible. The problem is, is being a socialite now is you have to, like, have a social media presence. See, as a writer, I really wish my parents wanted me to be a socialite. And that they would mock my writing and tell me all I need to do is be a socialite. Isn't that always how it works? (laughs) Um, Okay, so on December 12th, 1910, she's 25. She leaves to go shopping for a dress for her sister's debutante ball. So she gets dressed up. It's cold. She's wearing like a velvet hat, like some fucking 1910s socialite Manhattan vibes. Love. Like incredible, yeah? And so she takes... Like twenty five to thirty dollars in cash, which by today's standards, ninety thousand dollars, sixty million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's like between like seven and eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So she's like walking around with like buku cash. So she goes down to twenty seventh and fifth, and she buys some chocolates. And the woman's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you. I know your family. Put it on the family tab. So she didn't even have to fucking. Spend that cash, baby. So then she goes to a bookstore and she's like perusing the local bookstore. I mean, this is what it's like to be a socialite. It's great. She's perusing the local bookstore and she finds this book, Engaged Girl Sketches, which was like a series of humorous humorous, um, essays written by Emily Calvin Blake. So she also buys it there. Apparently the woman like recognizes her and is like, I'll put it on your family's tab. What a dream. Um, So both cashiers see her. She then runs into her friend, her friend's name, I love it, Gladys King, which just sounds so close to Gail King, uh-huh. Oprah's best friend. So I guess this is a very good friend of hers. They exchange pleasantries. She's like, oh, I got the invitation to your sister's debutante ball. I can't wait. Here's my reply card. I saved postage. LOL. Ha 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 ha. I'll see you later. So she like leaves and Gladys turns around and gives her a second wave. And and Dorothy's like, okay, bye, girl. I'm going to go walk through Central Park on my way home. Okay. That's not safe. Well, no one sees Dorothy again. Again. 1910. Okay, so this is what's crazy and weird. Well, it's all crazy and weird, but she never missed a meal. (laughs) That's what some of the articles said. (laughs) And again, another reason why I loved Dorothy, I was like, Girl, same. Yeah. Like, You're that dinner bell, like, come a running. I know. She never missed a meal. And so her family was like, hmm, that's so strange. Where is she? So they called all of her friends and they were like, yeah, no, we haven't seen Dorothy. It's super weird. And then later that night, her friend, Elsie, what's her name? I just like, I think it's like Elsie Henry. These names are great. Elsie Henry calls and she's like, did you find her? And her mom's like, oh, yes, we found her. And she's like, can I speak with her? And her mom goes, oh, she had a headache. So she went to bed. Spoiler alert. She was never found. I think. What the fuck's with her mom? Well, here's what happened. Her mom, they talk about being a bit of a recluse and like scared of outside. So she kind of was um, home all the time. But more importantly, her family was very concerned about their public image so much so mm. that when her when the when Dorothy never came home her brother called his friend who was a family friend and a lawyer mm-hmm. and he was like can you help us they called a lawyer first so what he does is he comes Whoa. over and he looks through her room and he's like i don't i don't see like anything he's like okay so he goes he does find something. So he goes through her room 
And um, because, again, they didn't want to call the police or anything because they didn't want a media circus around the family. They mm-hmm. wanted to see if they could locate her. And so they found personal letters of hers. Um, they found two folder for transatlantic ocean liners on her desk. Um, they found burned papers in the fireplace, which could have been her rejected manuscripts. They visited, this guy visited jails, morgues, hospitals, and was like looking for her and then no sign. So then he was like, okay, okay, we don't need to call the police yet, but... I think we should call this like Pinkerton private investigator. Definitely get Definitely a PI. On get the a scene. PI. So the PI comes and he's like, "All right, I got this." Because this he's lawyer super guy, handsome. Probably his name is Pinkerton. It could go either way. Oh. The thing is, is the lawyer was like, "Oh, this is a rich family. If I do well by them, like maybe I can get a new client." Super gross. So anyway, so they call Pinkerton PI. He starts looking. He finds no traces of her as well. There's no none of her friends know where her whereabouts where her whereabouts none of her friends know her whereabouts he thinks oh maybe she like eloped with a guy and went to europe but there was no one matching anything there was no marriage records that existed at that time of that you know around that time that matched her description or anything close to her name he sent agents overseas and they found several women who matched dorothy's description but none of them were her after six weeks of the lawyer and the pi that's when they contact the NYPD. Oh, my God. Like, horrible, right? So this family is a nightmare. Crazy. So what's insane about it, too, is, like, apparently Pinkerton had sent out feelers to all the police stations. But because of police protocol, they're like, we can't file a report based on, like, a private investigator reaching out to us. So we just have to wait till the family comes. So by the time the family comes, they're like, all right, dad. You got to do a press conference. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, do I have to? And they're like, just fucking do it. Mm-hmm. So he's on the press conference. A bunch of reporters are there and a media circus ensues. Just moving a little forward is like the New York Times covers this case on a daily basis at this point. You know, they become obsessed. It's a rich woman who's just disappeared off the face of the earth. The reporters gather and the dad offers $1,000 reward, which in today's money billion dollars. No, it's $27,000. And so at this point, there were rumors circulating about how the dad really wouldn't let her have any like male suitors. And so they were like, do you think she ran away? Do you think that she ran away? Click, 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 click. That's just what IMS in the press gaggles is saying. And he is quoted as saying, I would have been glad to see her associate with more young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession for business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. He says this and then the reporters are like, wait, we just asked him, wait, what? And so they dig deeper and they find that this guy, George Griscom Jr., who he likes to be called Jr., is a guy that um, Dorothy had sort of a relationship with. And he's a 42-year-old guy. She met him when she was at Bryn Mawr. He was an engineer, but he's from a wealthy Pennsylvania family. And I guess he spends all of his time with his family and he travels with his mom still. At the time, there were reports that his mother still bought his shirt and ties. He's 42. And in September 1910, so like a couple months before her disappearance, Dorothy was like, I'm going to go visit a friend in Cambridge from Bryn Mawr, mom, dad. I'm going to go for a week. Well, she went for a week, but she went and she visited Junior for a week. And what's crazy is he was at the hotel. So they had like a little week getaway and 
she gave them like her real name, her real address, like all this stuff. And then she pawned $500 worth jewels at a pawn shop. And they're like, this is super weird. This is like a rich lady. And that's how her parents found out. And they were super fucking pissed. So like she comes back home. Why was she pawning the jewels? To like pay for the week. Got it. I don't know. She had a $100 monthly allowance. So I feel like she probably, like, I don't know. She had, she was a socialite. She had an extravagant situation. So the last time Junior and Dorothy saw each other was in November because Junior was going to Florence, Italy with his family. Some reports say Naples, but let's just say he went on an Italian vacation with his family. Must be nice. So what's crazy is his mom, they sent him a telegram and they're like, Dorothy missing. What do you know? And he just was like, I know nothing. (laughs) Junior. (laughs) And so I guess it got bad enough where her mom, who like doesn't leave the house or anything, and her brother take an ocean liner to Italy to confront Junior in Italy. Dang. Yeah. No joke. And he's like, I know nothing. She's not there. They don't find her. They come back to New York. In February 1911... Junior comes back and he makes a plea for Dorothy to come back and contact him. And he's like, I'll I'll marry you. Like, I'd love to marry you if you come back, if only your mother would approve. And her mother, Mary, was like, yeah, no, never going to happen. I'm never going to approve of this shit. I don't approve. Don't come back. (laughs) Don't come back. (laughs) If that's your plan, stay gone. (laughs) Bye. So dad thinks that she was attacked in Central Park and her body was thrown into the Central Park Reservoir. But the lake was frozen at the time. And so that had been easy to spot. <laughs> Super easy to spot <laughs> her body. <laughs> and that nice velvet hat. And even in the spring when it thawed, they like ran a comb through the reservoir and they found nothing. Nobody. But was it just a regular sized comb? It was, yeah, it was a fine tooth. <laughs> <laughs> like a fine tooth comb. So... Of course, with any missing person, there were so many tips, so many calls. All of them were proved false. There were two ransom notes that were like, we kidnapped her. Give us $5,000. Both of those were false. In February of 1911, so around that same time that What's-His-Face Jr. came back, Dad got a postcard that just said, I'm safe from Dorothy. And it matched her handwriting, but the pu- they published her letters in a newspaper so like anyone could have copied her. handwriting oh like it wasn't and he was like people and the dad is pretty convinced she's dead yeah dad is like she's dead she's dead she's dead which i actually feel like is just like pretty crazy to for a parent to be like dead (laughs) i i I don't (laughs) love that um you'd like to see some hope being (laughs) i'd like to just see her mother had hope mother had hope which feels again like predictable Um, A jeweler in San Francisco claimed he recognized Dorothy and he was like, oh, my gosh, I had a woman come in and ask me to engrave a wedding ring on January 7th of this year. Um, It said to AJA from ERB, December 10th, 1910. Sure. That's basically all. Okay. But that meant nothing to the family in terms of those letters. Where she is, yeah. Okay. The NYPD announced they were stopping the investigation and that they also believed that she was dead. So here are some theories about what happened. One of which was she slipped, fell, hit her head, had amnesia, and was in the hospital somewhere. 
I love that for the soap readers out there. I love I them. love Amnesia, so I hope that's it. The problem is, is they went and they're like, no one matches her description. So probably not. And there's just not that many people with Amnesia. You could probably check them all in exactly. an afternoon. Um, that she was drugged and maybe abducted. There's a theory that she committed suicide over her failed career as a writer. Nah. I don't love it. But in a letter she wrote to Junior, the last letter that she sent him, well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares at me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Ooh. Sinister, but like, she's a writer. She's probably sad. She went and got chocolates. I can't. I I don't know. Are they, who her, buys chocolates <laughs> who right buys before? Chocolates. Well, also her friends saw her and they had like a very normal conversation. But yeah, I don't know. The theory that I like, I don't, for the record, I hate the theory, but it does feel plausible to me because of her romantic rendezvous with um, Junior. Junior only a couple months prior. People think possibly what happened was that she had a botched abortion and she and they covered died it up. And they, they covered it up. Oh, interesting. So in April 1916, so years after the fact, an illegal abortion, abortion clinic in the basement of a place in Pennsylvania was raided. And it was known by the locals as the house of mystery because women would come and like sometimes they wouldn't be seen again. One of the doctors testified that, like, the owner of the clinic had said that Dorothy died um, after experiencing complications from an abortion. And many of the women who died in this clinic were burned in the furnace. Mm. Horrible. Totally horrible. Horrible. So her father found this out and was like, no, she was attacked by someone. This is not true. In Oh, a- also, though, like, he's, yeah. again... He just cares so much about what the family looks like. Yeah. So. Well, if she's already dead, according to his height, he's like not going to tarnish it anymore, you know? In April 1916, there was this felon, this guy named Edward Glenoris. He claimed that he was paid $250 to bury the body of a young woman in December 1910. So around the time she went missing. This guy, his friend called Little Lewis. Or little names. Louis. I never know. Louis, Louis. Louis. Little Louis. Okay, little Louis. That does sound better. Little Louis calls him. He's like, yo, I got a job. We're going from Rhode Island, okay? We're going to take her to New Rochelle to West Point. <laughs> so he goes and he meets these two guys. And this woman is, like, drugged really out of it, not very conscious. And he sees one guy that was called Doc and another guy that matched Junior's description. Mm-hmm. They loaded the unconscious woman in the car and they drove to Weehawken. Sure. Little Louis said the woman was Dorothy and, in fact, ID'd a signet ring on her hand that matched one that Dorothy wore. The next day, Little Louis calls and they have to finish the job, which means the doc said that she died during an operation. And so they had to drive her back to New Rochelle and burn her in a cellar. So that story feels plausible to an abortion story as well. Like both of those feel like she went, had a procedure, it went wrong, and they had to dispose of the body. Whoa. Crazy. But they found no proof that that happened. And the man's story was shared with law enforcement. And then when he was interviewed, he was like, oh, no, I I, I don't know anything about that. You know, one of those. Yeah. One of those. 
Um, <laughs> so there were obviously more sightings, all of them false. Family got letters from women that claimed to be Dorothy. Again, false. In total, the Arnold spent $250,000 trying to find their daughter. While the father is convinced she was kidnapped and murdered, so much so that when he died in his will, he was like, there are no provisions set for Dorothy because she she's dead. dead. The mother remained hopeful until she died. But as of now, no one knows what happened. <laughs> well, she's not going to turn up to anytime Dorothy. soon. Yeah. I mean, bad news for you. Bad news. But that's the story of the disappearance of Manhattan Socialite in 1910. Miss. Maybe she's the woman. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold. Maybe she's the woman of Istal. <gasps> if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you're not a Patreon subscriber and you didn't hear that story. So I feel Ooh, sorry burn, for you. Burn, burn, baby, burn. Well, now I shouldn't say that after that story. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> no. I hate that story. Inappropriate. I mean, I, I do feel like, I, I don't know, I, the abortion feels plausible to me. Yeah. Because her body is not found, you know, like, and all of the ocean liners, like, she could have, there was one liner that was going to Long Island. Like, everybody was like, okay, let's look and see if there were any suicides. Like, if she hopped on a boat, an ocean liner, mm-hmm. and let's see if, like, they had a count of a person and then, like, when it landed, they didn't, right? Because that's a possibility. But everybody was accounted for around that time. There was only one boat that was, like, a local ferry that didn't account for a person. But, again, I just don't I don't see that happening. It's an unsolved, mysterious mystery. It's an on, it's a mysterious, unsolved, mysterious, mystery, m- mystery. Wrapped in an enigma. And with two nails on the head and hung. Ooh, gross. gross. No. I hated that. No, you know thank what? you. I would rather have a human head hanging on my wall than one of those signs that says something like... Live, laugh, love. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the most egregious one? Gather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said that with sans pause, with zero pause. Because what are you talking about? Don't tell me what to do, first of all. Gather. I don't want a sign that tells me what to do. I don't want a pillow that tells me what to do. Even if it says give thanks. Yeah, I don't. Fuck you. I'm, I can't wait to get you so much signage. I mean, they're all really I think dance, like live, laugh, love, I think is really bad. Oh, dance like no one's watching, you were going to say? Yeah, dance like no one's, sing like no one's listening, like those. But again, I do think live... <laughs> is that really one of them? I don't Sing know. like no one's listening? <laughs> I hope so. We're a good Podcast like no one's listening. I'm going to get you one that says that. <gasps> That's funny. That's really funny. Podcast like no one's listening. Podcast like no one's listening. I really like that. I'll ta- I'll do a Merry Christmas pillow around the holidays. I don't even like my mom has a picture of me and my sisters in uh, her house, and the frame says sisters. My mom has I can't that too. abide that. That's a mom thing, though. We know uh, that. So, no, my mom. I don't like to think that she bought that. I like to think it happened to her somehow. <laughs> mom, call me. Where'd that frame come from? Did yeah. you buy it? Or did it happen to you? My mom not only bought it, but she gave some to her sisters. No. Yeah. I'm dear readers, we gotta go. It's hot. I gotta put this air conditioning on. Bye. Bye.